0: Her business purpose was step back and pause. And this is the story she shared. A few weeks ago, my little five-year-old niece, Maya, came tearing into the house with two apples, one in each hand. And I thought, this is a good time to teach Maya how to share. I said, Maya, can I please have one of your apples? She quickly took a bite out of the apple in her right hand, and quick as a flash, she took a bite out of the apple in her left hand. I was shocked. But before I could say anything, she reached out with the apple in her left hand, and she said, Auntie, Have this one. It's sweeter. (laughs) I'm sharing this with you because every day we have that same opportunity. We can jump to conclusions. But every time we take a step back and pause and give our customers a second chance, imagine the difference we can make.
1: Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the active CEO podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole.
2: On this episode of the active CEO podcast, we speak with a charismatic, energetic and a superstar in the storytelling business world from being on some of the world's largest stages to intimate settings with the leaders of fortune 500 companies. She has the charm, charisma, clarity, and conviction to keep the attention of even the hardest old school leaders. She has a BA in economics and sociology from St. Xavier's College, an MA economics from the University of Mumbai, a master's of science in IR and personal management from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Her early years were focused as an economist before an epiphany changed her course and she found her true passion and pathway as director of 1001 and then Director of and Chief Storytelling at Yamani Nadu Consulting. She goes above and beyond as a volunteer guide at the National Gallery of Victoria and has provided pro bono for Pollinate Energy and High Reserves Global Citizenship and Leadership Program. I'm pleased to introduce to you a leading expert in business storytelling, the world's only <laughs> economist turned storyteller and consistently voted among the top business storytellers worldwide. Put your hands together and bring a huge round of applause for (laughs) Yamini Nadu. Yamini, welcome to the show.
0: Oh, my God. Thank you so, so much, Craig. What an amazing, warm, comprehensive. You've really done your research and Such a fabulous introduction, very impressive. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, you're welcome.
2: You've achieved a lot and we've got a lot more coming from this wonderful world you work in. You have a fascinating life of two very distinct books, shall we say. What were the early chapters of your life like as a child?
0: Oh, wonderful. Grew up in a very happy small knit family in Bombay, India, in a high rise apartment building six stories high my father worked for a bank but it was a reserve bank so it was a government bank and my mother was a teacher so you know really really good uh, lovely parents brother and sister um i i was very privileged in that i went to a local school and we still take this red bus you probably know the red buses from london very yes. similar red bus uh we used to to school every day and every day on the way to school i used to always imagined this red bus was a tiger so some of my first stories were purely from the imagination of imagining, uh, imagining riding a tiger to school. Not every child does that, I know. <laughs> but that was perhaps the start of it. We also had a lovely teacher in about grade four called Miss And I often say, share stories about her. And she used to read aloud to us in school. And one of the first books she read to us was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which has always been a favorite book of mine. So I've always been a bookworm from when I've been very young. Growing up in India in the 70s, very post-colonial, so a lot of Inid Blight and P.G. Buddha, so all of that, your typical English, you know, early childhood literature. Um, so I think that's that's sort of a snapshot of my childhood and growing up in Bombay, going to St. Joseph's School, studying in St. Xavier College, very different era. So three of my girlfriends who grew up in that apartment block with me, we're still good friends today. And every year we do a little, we're all sort of married and scattered all over the globe with family. Uh, Every year we meet and we do a girls week trip away. So our most recent trip, they actually came to Australia, but before that we were in Sri Lanka and in Bali. So every year, that's just a special sweet time to connect and um, be together. And the last trip we did when we were in Sri Lanka, one of the girlfriends actually brought some of the letters we'd written to each other when we were 18. <laughs> <laughs> nothing more cringeworthy, but nothing more hilariously funny. So back to you, Craig. But thank you for that trip down nostalgia lane.
2: So, so what was the, the big shining star that you were dreaming of as you <laughs> ran around the playgrounds, you read all those amazing books and you rode the tiger to school with your friends? <laughs>
0: I only ever had two ambitions. One was to be a zookeeper. uh, And the other was to actually be a writer, like Inid Bleichen. So, um, you know, I'd even written like little short story and I'd given myself a, a very early pseudonym. I call myself Mini Rain. So, many like a short form of Yamini, and rain was just, I love rain. So, uh, and it's so Anglo centric, which is very funny now. <laughs> uh, but those were sort of, yeah. But as a child, I was just enjoying childhood, enjoying being in family, fabulous building, um, loving, you know, the food, eating street food in India enjoying the rains. So every time it rained, they would give us a school holidays. So every time it bucketed with rain, we would pray that the school would cancel just for that day. So it was a very innocent, um, it was a very innocent time. It was a time where we used to roam freely in the neighborhood. We knew everybody who lived there. So there's a real sense of community and connection, uh, but never, never strong, big ambition in that sense. I was unusual in that I never wanted to study medicine or be a, be an engineer, which are the two conventional dreams that are uh, perpetuated in, in Indian society, particularly in my milieu. Uh, so I always wanted, because I read really a lot of, lot of Gerald I probably read Gerald Darrow, my mm. f- family, my animals, my family and other animals, my family and other animals, and his childhood growing up in Corfu, where, you know, he talks about then he did become a zookeeper. So he's always want to be a zookeeper.
2: So those moments, moments and influences as a young child have formed your foundation as a speaker, and you spoke there about a teacher and also some of the books that you're reading. Who else were your greatest influences during those formative years?
1: Definitely
0: my parents. I think uh, my mother was really unusual in that she worked. Um, so it was really unusual for women in you know in that context to be working. She was a maths teacher. She worked at a local school. Um, And definitely my father, who uh, was very humble, but highly intelligent and had wonderful people skills, always put people first. And my brother and sisters, there's quite a bit of of an age difference between us. Um, And uh, they were both voracious readers, um, great sense of humor. And in fact, my latest book, Story Mastery, I dedicate to them. I say your humor, generosity and storytelling lights me up. So I think definitely my immediate family, yeah.
2: That's very, very special. Yeah. You, you have this bubbly, energetic and, and really charismatic vibe that is so, I find very contagious.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I'm curious to know what the key driver or why was behind becoming an economist?
0: Oh my God. <laughs> Believe it or not, uh, the very first economics uh, class I did was in school with Mrs. Joseph. I even remember her name and she was such a good teacher that I was immediately seduced. But don't forget, my my father had that banking background. So we would often talk about things that he was doing, particularly in the microfinance sector. And that wasn't such a big term then growing up in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but his strata of banking was very much about providing for disadvantaged farmers, for um, the urban poor, that sort of thing. So uh, I could just see when, and I so I had this background with my family, with my father, and even my brother is a child accountant and a philanthropist, of, of having, of discussing social impact, even though we didn't use those words, I'm using modern words around it. Uh, And then having this amazing teacher, Mrs. Joseph, who was able to tell us that economics is how you move the levers and government through policy and society. And she was also such a good teacher that I was immediately hooked. So really, you know, one and thanks to you, Craig, uh, the theme that's coming through for me is how powerful and this allows me to pay homage to all those teachers. You don't often think about it or. Have that those concrete moments of reflection or gratitude and that that was it i loved the teacher i loved the idea of economics and the power that it could have in terms of uh you know both macro and macroeconomics that was a simple journey so ended up studying economics at college and then doing a master's in economics uh, but actually working in economics <laughs> can be quite boring did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> so
2: talking about boring, um, you, you kind of felt yourself at a crossroads as an economist and, and wondering why change was so difficult to communicate. For you, what happens next?
0: What happens next? Uh, I do, you know, I study in, in the LSE, at marry and I migrate to Australia, I start working in corporate Australia. Um, and I was always frustrated, So you know, quickly become a senior leader. And I was always frustrated with why data doesn't persuade people. So we used to do these PowerPoint-dense tags. We used to roll out strategy. We used to have executive briefings. And it's just so hard, isn't it? And people are the single biggest determinant of any success. And uh, you always feel you're bashing your head against a wall. And you go to all this development. You're talking to other leaders. And uh, this is not a unique experience. In fact, it's disappointingly or sadly a universal experience. And this was when on a long-haul flight. Someone gave me a book or I bought a book by Stephen Denning, and it was called The Leader's Guide to Business Storytelling. So my economist brain recoiled at the words business and storytelling. It felt like an oxymoron, but I was also desperate for answers. And it felt like snake oil, but on this long haul flight, I actually devoured the book. I read the entire book. And as soon as I got off, I felt a light bulb that exploded in my head. And I immediately rang lots of leaders I knew, and I asked them, I said, do you... And they all said two things. They said, we know good leaders tell stories, but we don't know how to. Oh. And this was also around the time when Obama had just been elected to president and people were talking about what an amazing storyteller he was. And so I immediately started Googling and trying to find out more. And I wanted to learn this. Craig, nobody was offering it anywhere mm. in the world. So Denning had written an HBR article and a book, but nobody was offering storytelling workshops or masterclasses or keynotes. And so often we know that when you want to learn something, the best way is to teach it. And so there's a gap, yeah, there's a gap in the market. No one was filling the gap. So I co-founded Australia's first storytelling company in 2005. And actually, Craig, as I was doing my research for another project, I realized it might even have been the world's first storytelling company. But I don't want to go out without with that, unless I'm hundred percent sure.
2: <laughs> you might have to go back a few thousand years to check that one.
0: <laughs> but actually a corporate entity that's dedicated to storytelling versus, you know, storytelling, which is part of our human DNA. So very bold, very ambitious. Sorry, you go. You had a question.
2: No, very ambitious. So, so being one of the pioneers of the reinvention of the art of storytelling for influence, what was the game changer for you when you began spreading your word? And your message?
0: There were two things. The first was we spent about eighteen months educating the market. So you've got to think two thousand and five. So I'm talking almost fifteen years ago. People, you know, no one had, no one had even heard of it. People had just said storytelling. How can you do that in business? You know, like it was, it was so novel. Like no one had heard of it. But within the 30 days, that was my first thing, is you've got to be prepared to educate the market. My second thing was get your first customer. That's all that matters. So within 30 days, National Australia Bank was our first customer. They had all just come back, these leaders from America. And in America, the word was, the next big thing is storytelling. So they came back and they started looking for storytelling training. And we were the only company providing it. But I think you can talk till the cows come home when you've got an IP or an idea. But for me, the rubber hits the road only when you get that first paying customer. And Craig, I blush with shame when I think of the workshop we did with them because (laughs) it's so raw. You know, you just know a little bit more than your customer. Like you've spoken with Denning, you've read the book, you've done some research. But it's from that first seed is that then through every customer, through every iteration, you grow, you get better, you develop your own IP. And in 2013, we co-published a book called Hooked that was based on our IP from you know, 2005, One World, and that then went on organically to become a bestseller. So, but for me, the two learnings was educate the market and be prepared to just keep on doing that. So speaking is a great way to do that. But the other way is, Get your first customer because nothing gives you the nouns the commercial acumen the confidence and the conviction that someone's going to pay good money this works and then you learn from that
2: you bring up a really good point there where people just want to be perfect before they start mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. it's all about being vulnerable in that first instance to just go you know what just put it out there if you yeah. don't put it out there you're never going to know whether it's actually going to catch and how you need to adjust that and amend that and Sculpt it so that you can actually get to the message later on, but you just got to get going, don't you?
0: Absolutely. And it's that whole about progress and it's having that iterative mentality and knowing all of the people in our space. I know we're going to put out something that's reasonably good. You know, I'm not saying put out something that's chunky and that you'd be ashamed to have your name. It's going to be reasonably good. But that idea of perfect is just ridiculous. So put it out there, test it, get better every time. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, like be you know do your very best but also just be kind to yourself have some compassion have some Mm self-compassion I think that helps as well yeah
2: if we were in the South Island of New Zealand in a plane at 10,000 feet (laughs) and we just jumped out to parachute over the Southern Alps wow what would be your 60 second business flight pitch before we landed (laughs) safely on the vibrant green next to Lake
0: Oh, I love your whole, uh, I'm still in that moment, I'm still immersed in that experience with you. My 60 second pitch would be business storytelling is like life after Google. You wonder how you lived without it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's brilliant. We did it in six seconds. I love that. (laughs) Very clear and concise. And you know based on that so obviously you wonder how you can live without it what are the key fundamentals to telling a great story
0: the first is being clear on your message so i find business people we try to solve the hunger with one story and then it doesn't land so that would be my be very clear on the single message you want to communicate the second is personal stories pack a punch So i don't think i could sit through one more conference where the speaker is sharing a story about steve jobs you know Mm -hmm. they've all been done to death all the a personal story where you can tie that to a business message is extremely powerful and my third tip is it's absolutely a skill you've got to practice it you've got to understand what elements go in how to make a story land um, and even people who appear very natural and impromptu—it's like comedians, Greg. You know how they—it all looks off the cuff, but they've spent a lifetime honing and crafting. And stories, stories actually have a structure; they have a system, like anything else. Like you're building a house, it can be the most unique house in the world. There, there are some universal elements that, you know, make it a house. Similarly with storytelling. So I would say invest time in learning the craft and then applying it. Yeah. You know.
2: I can see a number of people sitting in the boardroom wondering why (laughs) on earth a story would be the difference when influencing change or a decision. Why is storytelling so crucial and the new currency of business?
0: Because I think stories are like Velcro for the brain. Do you remember having sneakers with Velcro? yes you know velcro and we could you couldn't resist but <laughs> the first half an hour with your new purchase you were just like driving your parents insane by you know putting <laughs> scraping it back and pasting it back on that's what stories are stories are velcro for the brain and for the heart so the stories are the only thing that stick so they help people understand remember and retell your message so I was doing some work with the financial, you know, with, um, financial services and I said, when your clients go home and they talk to their partners, can they remember what you said? Can they retell it? And all of them said no, because they don't use stories. So stories are like Velcro. Everything else that we do, the data, the PowerPoint, the information is all Teflon. Do you know Teflon? Non-stick. Yes.
2: Yeah.
0: So I think if you want people to understand, remember and retell your message, a story can help you. If you want people, if you want those Velcro moments, a story will do that for you. But if you want to connect with people's hearts and not just their heads, a story will do that for you.
2: So then can storytelling be used on its own or does it need some real substance behind it to make not make it not just relatable, but meaningful?
0: Oh, you're spot on, Greg. So I always tell my clients, Ideally stories are supported by data. So I don't like to see just stories on their own as much as I don't like to see just data on its own. So I think either of these two just on their own is like the sound of one hand clapping. So if I have some good robust data and then I have a handful of stories, the two together are very powerful. So I was at a conference the other day and one of the speakers, the psychologist was saying, one in four people suffer anxiety, one in four people. a lot and then he stepped away and said I remember when I was 18 I had my first anxiety attack and he shared a personal story so can you see how you've got the big data point and then you can do a story now not always can you can your stories be supported by data but ideally I'd like to see both and my other point to you is that all your stories have to be authentic they have to be true they have to have really happened Research tells us Australian audiences have the biggest BS detectors. <laughs> <laughs> I know we've got a G rated podcast here, so I won't spell out what BS is. <laughs> uh, so people can just sense, you know, there's a conviction, if there's a genuineness around your story. Hmm.
2: So, how long can a story be? Is it something hey. that I can sit there and waffle on for the next two hours, <laughs> oh, or does it have to be quite clear?
0: <laughs> Great question. And sorry, I was loud. To cut you off uh, because people always worry they go good no time for a story but for me ideally a business story should be under two minutes 60 30 seconds 60 seconds under two minutes and that's when you're going to have the biggest impact in economics you know we have the law of diminishing returns so after two minutes your story actually starts having diminishing returns diminishing returns is why that first piece of cake tastes beautiful the second piece of cake good, and that third piece of cake not good anymore. So that's your diminishing returns on cake. Uh, but you get to two minutes only if you do some thinking about your story, you do some drafting, and you do some practice. But when you go to share your story, because it's yours and you've done the work, it's very conversational, so it's very organic. So it's completely different to how we try to script and nail down every word in our other pieces of communication a good story is that sweet spot between having some level of preparation and being organic, so using language that you would normally do. Craig, I really feel I should at this point just share a story from one of my clients with you. Feel free. And you can see if I'm using all those principles. <laughs> <laughs> so, and this also features in my book, Story Mastery. This is one of my clients, birthday Scandal, and she wanted her team who work in insurance to take a step back and pause. So insurance is always about efficiency, but sometimes you get a case in front of you where you need to actually step back, reread it, maybe call the customer. So her business purpose was step back and pause. And this is the story she shared. A few weeks ago, my little five-year-old niece, Maya, came tearing into the house with two apples, one in each hand. And I thought, this is a good time to teach Maya how to share I said maya can i please have one of your apples she quickly took a bite out of the apple in her right hand and quick as a flash she took a bite out of the apple in her left hand i was shocked but before i could say anything she reached out with the apple in her left hand and she said auntie have this one it's sweeter (laughs) i'm sharing this with you because every day we have that same opportunity we can jump to conclusions but every time we take a step back and pause and give our customers a second chance, imagine the difference we can make.
2: Oh, very powerful.
0: Very powerful. Mm-hmm. And under, under two minutes, you know, but because she's done the thinking, she's got clear on her purpose. She's chosen a personal story that lands it. So there's a craft that's sitting behind it, but it's like the foundation of a house. You don't actually see it, but then it allows the story to pop. I was actually doing some work a few years ago with um, Carolyn Creswell and the Commons team. They were celebrating 25 years, so taking the entire team through storytelling. And I shared this idea that every business story should ideally be under two minutes. And Carolyn Creswell actually took out her iPhone and she started to record every time, every story that I shared. <laughs> and I came in under two minutes every time, Craig, because my clients have done the work. They've done the work. So I know their stories come in under time. Yeah.
2: Excellent. So congratulations. Um, as you have mentioned, you've released your fourth book, Story mm. Mastery, mm. which mm. follows on from mm. Triple Your Presentation Success, Hooked, which you spoke about earlier, Power Play book. Mm. What is the heart and the soul of your latest release, Story yeah. Mastery?
0: The heart and soul of this is how we can master storytelling. Because I think we're sitting in the midst of a storytelling revolution. So good stories will wow any audience and deliver surprise, delight, and results. But a bad story or spin passed off as a story will immediately bomb. And the good and bad storytelling is going to be separated by a chasm, so I think why settle for mediocrity? Let's all aim for story mastery, and the book can show you how. So I'm just going to pull it out. I'm just going to grab it. Yeah. So I've said in in you know to talk about. I think stories today are as critical as data because everybody's got data, but data doesn't differentiate. So this is, I think, show me the money is going to be reinvented as show me the story. <laughs> so, are you and your leadership, are you your leaders and your teams prepared with that? So that's what this book does. So every time you're sitting, you know, in the, in the cusp of a revolution, this helps you be prepared and to to come out leading, you know, at the top.
2: It's a bit of getting those risks and being prepared.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but also just enjoying it, like finding mm. a new tool and discovering it and exploring it and thriving. You know.
2: So in the book, you talk about the Aristotle model of influence in chapter one. Why is this model still so important in success?
0: Uh, It's such a powerful model. It's a timeless model, Craig. So, you know, some things in the world are timeless and this is a wonderful example of that. And every time I share it in, you know, any context all over the world, from boardrooms to tea rooms to, you know, startup ecosystems to coaching sessions, people are just blown away by it because aristotle said you need three things to have impact you need logos which is the logic you need ethos which is personal credibility and you need pathos which is emotional connection and he believed logos was number one and when i asked people what do we spend all our time in in organizations as leaders in you know um, entrepreneurs they all say in logos so what logic does is it informs people but it doesn't shift behavior and this is why leaders, so I always get two pieces of feedback all over the world from leaders. One is one of regret. They say we wished we discovered storytelling earlier in our career because we've spent our whole life pushing up with logos. And I did that as an economist because I didn't know any, you don't know what you don't know. So I didn't know they could. There was something different I needed to do, which is why the Aristotle model is so powerful. Because it says every time you want to shift behavior, look at ethos, look at personal credibility, and look at pathos, emotional connection. But when we tell leaders do more ethos, do more pathos, they start. You know, they're linear, logical, technical experts. They don't know how to. And storytelling gives you a tool to do that. But do it in a way that's really subtle and sophisticated. So I really want to talk about our audiences today. I feel they're both of those things. They're very sophisticated audiences. So I don't believe in essentially dumbing down what we have to do or mindless repetition. And, you know, there are some old paradigms that maybe we need to shift a little bit. So we have quite discerning, sophisticated audiences. Um, so, and storytelling is a tool that can really resonate in terms of ethos and pathos without necessarily the hustle, you know, without being pushy and, um, in your face and with the salesy kind of approach to it either.
2: So everyone who has a pulse has stories (laughs) and I know you've said that before, But a lot of people will be sitting there going, I I, I don't know if I have a story. What are my stories? How how can people start Mm -hmm. to unlock their stories?
0: Great question. A really good question. Uh, The first thing I want to take away is the fact that a story has to be epic. So quite often we get sucked in by motivational speakers and they always do epic stories of scaling Mount Everest and sailing world, you know, the world solo. And that's when the you know, we feel, oh, I've got nothing. You don't have epic. But what is really powerful in business is everyday stories. So when you think of two apples or some of the other stories I've shared, they're everyday stories. Shopping at Bunnings, dropping your kids off to school, being bullied in your seven. And everyday stories are very, very relatable. Mm. Your audience immediately sees themselves in your story. So with an epic story, I'm in spectator mode. So I'm sitting back and I'm spectating but I'm not immersed but in everyday story I'm immediately immersed in your story um the chief experience officer of YouTube he said we thought our audiences wanted to lean back but they actually want to lean in and be involved and that's what an everyday story does because I too have had a teacher in your seven you know we two have been on a family holiday so th- that is the first thing I want to say to free up your audience that think of everyday stories uh, my second tip is maybe start to collect stories so so many you know go out to get a coffee something happens you're traveling on a plane something happens uh you 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 talking to a client all of these are stories and you've got to start to collect them and start to use them and the third is just get some skill like you know how do you start what do you put in the middle how do you end and just do some practice around that But also, I think the fear that stops us, uh, so it's important to talk about that as well, is you always worry about TMI, too much information, because, you know, you can be quite a private person. So I say make a difference between private stories. There are stories that I won't share and stories that I'm happy to share. So don't feel you have to share everything. This is not a what's and all. This is not Oprah Winfrey. It's not a, you know... It's not group therapy, it is storytelling. <laughs> so, you as a storyteller, and one way that I helps my clients, that I help my clients, is they say sometimes, Craig, they've been through a serious illness
1: mm-hmm.
0: and they want to share that. And I often ask them, how does that serve the room? So, how does that serve your audience? So, only if you're able to answer that in a way that's compelling would we deem that that story is appropriate to be shared. So I think all of those things, focus on everyday stories, start collecting stories, differentiate, be careful about your private stories that you don't want to share, and always be grounded as a storyteller. That allows me to stay very humble because I go, how does this serve this room? How does this serve the audience? So then it's not just about me and my stories, but it's about something of value.
2: It's that that purpose and that why behind it. And as you say, what's in it for the audience is so powerful. Yeah. We, we all want to finish with a bang <laughs> and, and deliver yeah. a really compelling message and even a call to action to leave people with. How can we create really powerful endings so people walk away inspired and have an, have an action or something they're actually going to do afterwards?
0: It's all in the craftings. It's all in the practice and the landings. I think endings are really power moments in storytelling. It's like landing a plane. So you only get one chance at it. So you want to make sure you have a compelling ending. I often, the biggest, the best advice I can give you is to go with one ending. So people often get very ambitious. They try to tack on a whole lot of stuff, you know. But I think it's much more elegant, much more resonates better with your audience if you try to land it on just one message. But also, Craig, don't create such a high expectation from one story. <laughs> you know? yeah. I think you've got to think of a na- building a narrative arch where you're narrating lots of stories all the time. Like Harley Davidson, the motorbike company, their um, narrative arch is born to be wild, born to be wild. And all their clients submit these little, little, little videos, which are stories demonstrating how, you know, this, this pans out. And that is what creates this overarching born-to-be-wild narrative. So, you know, uh, a story is, is not a silver bullet, but if it's told well, it's crafted, it's authentic, it supports data, it can really quantum leap your influence.
2: So you have a, a unique and beautiful delivery of turning the most simplest things into a story.
1: <laughs>
2: Do you ever get your family or close friends saying, just tell it to me straight rather than creating a story about it?
0: i know they're too indulgent i've never had that but they were always very suspicious of me because even if i'm sharing something in the pub they think i might be practicing for work <laughs> and i plead the fifth amendment but i'm also letting you know a secret that you've always got to constantly practice <laughs> it doesn't have to be like a formal you know even if with your kids with your family you're always practicing your story so yeah <laughs>
2: subtle art yeah what habits and routines set you in the right frame of mind to deliver just the right amount of energy for your team and your audience
0: now very early in my career i got the advice when i was setting out to be a speaker that to be a successful speaker you actually have to get your off stage stuff together you know they didn't use the word stuff they used a similar word. so unless you're eating right sleeping right exercising you have good routine it's going to be very hard to either succeed or to sustain success and i've totally totally found that to be true um with with the work we do you know with the level of travel with the level of commitment and with turning up every day you've got to bring your a game you can't have an off day or um with every speaker every conference every client it's it's like showtime you've always got to turn up a hundred percent and look i love that a couple of practices really help me. The first is, Craig, and this is really unusual, I have a daily practice of silence. Mm-hmm. I do about 30 minutes, sometimes longer, I've even done like longer silence retreats. So obviously no speaking, but no technology, no writing, no... You know, sometimes I might meditate, sometimes I might just sit in the silence. And I find that in a noisy, constant, chaotic churning, you know, relentless world that can be very grounding. I'm going to just give you a little bit of context. I was listening to the people from Center of Edge and what they said helped me understand my practices. He talked about some practices that are like the roots of a tree. So for me, my roots practice would be silence, meditation journaling and exercise i have a personal trainer and I exercise so that really grounds me and he talked about shoots practices so that's how you go for creativity you you know reach for the stars and then that's for me is engaging with community working in a mastermind group writing religiously reading voraciously of journaling all of that are my shoots practices
2: oh i like that approach the the roots and <laughs> yeah. the shoots
0: Correct. So what are you doing? And sorry, roots for me also is deep nature. So I have to always, and like you, I spend a lot of time in planes and conference suites and in artificial light. And so for me, I have to always go and ground deeply in nature. And something I discovered last year I was traveling in Japan with Goldman Sachs was the Japanese practice of forest bathing. Hmm where you go deep into a forest, sometimes with a guide, um, it's fully clothed. So, yeah. you know, I want to make sure no one gets anxious. About <laughs> um, but just being deeply in nature. And I find that particularly, uh, in even where I'm sitting, you can see there are plants just mm. behind me, um, can be deeply grounding.
2: Beautiful. So we all know smart people have great answers. Yeah. But the best people ask great questions. Yeah. When was the last time you did something for the first
0: time? <laughs> All the time. Uh, and I recently did a Spartan race, you know, a Spartan. Yes. Yes. Totally crazy, still recovering, freezing cold, did it with a team of people. Uh, and it's that whole, <clears throat> you know, thing of setting a goal and just going for it and mallowing in mud. And uh, But also I'm a bit... Uh, I'm a bit suspect because I will do anything for a great story. So <laughs> that was it. And my other thing was about two years ago, and this perhaps one of the toughest things I did was I um, I started stand-up comedy. Yes. So hitting open mic nights. Yeah, I did some I did I did some learning with a comedy school. Um, did a performance at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. All of that. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to go back. So I took a bit of a sabbatical, but I'm back in August with my comedy. So that constantly challenges me because it's new audiences, it's content and it's immediate feedback.
1: Hmm.
0: Either they're laughing or they're not. There's no gray area. It was, oh, you know. <laughs> so I love that. That's
2: yeah. great. We were just talking about overnight last night and that was kind of my next challenge in the next couple of months was to throw myself into the deep end and have a crack at that. Wonderful. So
0: Wonderful. Yeah, I would highly recommend it. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, Uh, For any sweet car, I think it's sort of mandated. I say that's how you're just going to get so much better. Yeah, Mm. yeah.
2: What is the one question that you would love to solve?
0: The the one question I'd love to solve is how we can have more equity in the world. So I'm so, um, not just gender equity, but even income equity, yeah. It's really sad to see that even in 2019, like just yesterday, I was in the CBD in Melbourne, uh, passing quite a few homeless people with a sign, you know, in front of them. And I was thinking, how is this, that in the 21st century, where we've solved so many problems and, you know, got amazing technology, we've got social impact movements, uh, we've got a world where we've had, you know, leaders like Obama. uh, Why is it? And we also know, you know, uh, looking at some of the Nobel Prize-winning uh, work in economics, that poverty is often more political than it is about income or resource distribution.
1: Uh,
0: I, I just, I just want to see in my lifetime, and I know we've made tremendous strides in lifting people out of poverty. And you know, um, you must be across Hans Rosling's work where he's shown that the data has significantly moved. Mm uh it it would be wonderful to see some level of equity across the world
2: i like that so how do you know when you're in a peak state of mind
0: wow (laughs) i know when i'm a peak state of mind is when i feel abundant in terms of my time for other people in terms of having rich conversations of not being harried not not still having a sense of achievement, but not a sense of that super, you know, where your energy is all scattered. So that's when I feel I'm at peak. I'm also at peak when I get wonderful feedback for my clients. Hmm. For me, that's when I know we've had a peak performance moment. Yeah.
2: You've given away some great gems today and some wonderful insights into this business of storytelling. How can people learn more about what you do? And what would be the best way for them to connect with you?
0: Oh, thank you. Just if they connect with me via LinkedIn or my website, Um Several ways, the simplest way is to buy my book. Next, if you're you know, looking for a speaker or you want to do some deeper work, reach out, let's chat via LinkedIn or a phone call. And let's see if we, we're a good fit to work together. And I can help you, if I can help you resolve or get some outcomes for what you're looking at at work.
2: Yamini, it's been an absolute pleasure yeah. speaking with you today. I thoroughly enjoyed the multitude of stories that you've taken <laughs> us through on this journey today, and and seeing how you began as a, as a young child in Bombay, and yeah. how you've the people that have influenced you and those moments in life which have really changed the way you think and the way you do things, and to become a pioneer in that helping people in that storytelling space for businesses and really own that space, your ease of explaining the clarity and the conviction around what you're doing and why it's so important and the results that you're getting is is lovely to see. I love your vibe, your energy, the charismatic approach you have and I've seen how you change an audience and I look forward to seeing how the story mastery um, evolves people over the next few years and then what the next chapter is or the next book is in your life as you move forward. So thank you very much for your great insights and your humble um, Mm -hmm. approach to the work that you do. Thank you.
0: Oh, Craig, what a joy. Thank you so much. And thank you to your audience. Thank you very much. It's been a total joy.
2: On this week's active CEO performance tip, we're talking about the chief role model. As a leader, your real title should be chief role model. The culture of a team or organization begins from the person at the top. You have a lot of power as a leader and with power comes great responsibility. As they say, the fish always starts to rot from the head. So your actions, behaviors, approach, and leadership style determines the foundation of the culture. Be the role model for the desired values, behaviors, and identity of the team or organization you lead. You need to make sure that you are building the environment that allows for a great culture to thrive and for people to really connect from the outside in. You've got to build that culture from being the chief Role model.
1: Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in nrg to perform Leave a review on iTunes, drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the nrg to perform Facebook and Instagram pages be sure to check out the next active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.